Well, I'm so thankful that you're here with us this morning, and uh, I'm grateful and excited to be in this text with you today. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 53. We've been in Isaiah 53. Now, this is our, well, this is our second week in Isaiah 53, but we've been looking at this particular servant song, which begins back in 52, verse 13, now for a couple of weeks. And just to keep things in perspective, we are walking all the way through the book of Isaiah. And uh, we started this some time ago, and, and now we're kind of, uh, we've landed at the, the fourth and final servant song, and we're taking our time through it. We're taking our time through it because there's so much to it. There's so much depth to it. There's so much uh, weight and insight, and we don't want to uh, hurry too quick over this text. So uh, last time we looked at 53 verse 1, and this time we're looking at verses 2 and 3, Okay. So let's just look at the text, and we're going to read verses 1, 2, and 3. So let's look at the text together. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. And that's our text for today. So just a little bit of summary about what we've learned uh, just to this point. It's only been four verses, but just what we've learned to this point is that there's this servant coming. Just look back with your eyes at, at chapter 52, verse 13, and, and just look at what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So this begins this discussion about this servant that is to come. What is he like? What will he do? Well, the servant is going to be wise. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. God's going to take, seemingly, it seems like an individual at this point. He's going to take someone He's going to be a, a wise someone, and he's going to take him, he's going to lift him high, and he's going to exalt him. And then what? And many were astonished. Why? Because his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, beyond that of a child of mankind. And so this servant, who is high and lifted up and exalted, then all of a sudden we have a different image of this servant in that he's been marred and disfigured before them, and people are astonished at what's happened. And then, verse, uh, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This verse right here, the beginning of this verse, is telling us that this marring and disfiguring of the servant produced blood. And this blood then was sprinkled, and the sprinkling of this blood went how far? Well, it went over many nations. So this is representing to us the fact that this servant was going to shed his blood and it was going to be a far-reaching atoning sacrifice more of that uh, language is coming in our text but it says con continuing in verse 15 that kings shall shut their mouth because of him for that which had been not told them they they see and that which they have not heard they understand and so even kings these people in the highest positions of authority and uh, with the greatest amount of might of all the nations, even these shut their mouth because of the work that this servant has done and what he's accomplished. Pretty amazing. And then in verse, uh, chapter 53, verse 1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Now, that's where we spent quite a bit of time because a couple of places in our New Testament quote that verse word for word, and we looked at what all that might mean and why that might be. And so basically what we uh, discovered from that, what we concluded is that the revealing of the arm of the Lord is something that he alone does. And in fact, who will be those ones who hear and believe? It is those to who God reveals his arm. No one will see and no one will understand unless God reveals his arm, unless God shows them who he is and what he's doing, his great might and power. Okay? So then what we have in verses 2, 3, and 4 is really an explanation of why this question was asked in the first place. And that's what we're going to look at today. I've, I've kind of got our outline for you, what we're going to be looking at. We have the question in chapter 53, verse 1. We then have two points of explanation of why this question was asked. And the first one we see here in verse 2, and we're going to see a description of this servant. And then we're also going to see the reaction of the people. And then we're going to have another uh, explanation, and we're going to see another description of the servant, and then we're going to see another reaction of the people. So just keep this idea in mind as we go through the text today, because this is exactly what's happening. And uh, maybe this will make more sense as we get into it together. So the question has been asked, who is going to believe this, and to whom is the arm of the Lord going to be revealed? That's the big question. And then there's a four, your, your Bible should say four next, right? Uh, verse 2 says four, uh, because this is about to be an explanation. Here's why I'm asking this question. Here's why we're asking who's going to believe this. And so that's why we have two points of expl uh, explanation here next in the text. The first point, let's look at it together, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So here's our first point of explanation. We have a description of the servant here. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What exactly might that mean? And of what significance could it possibly have for us who have gathered together here this morning that will be worthy of our time? Uh, I, I think there is merit to digging in to see what this might be saying. Um, like a, a servant, this, this servant is, is like, a, uh, like a, a young plant, but the word actually isn't plant. It's, uh, well, if you look at the Greek version, it actually says young child, but it, it's just a young one, a young thing. And uh, the context tells you what kind of young thing we're talking about, which is uh, in the next part, like a root out of dry ground, which is why it's translated as, as, a, as, a, as a root or a young plant, right? It's a sapling. What kind of young thing? Well, like a, like a young plant that grows out of the dry ground. Um, you kind of get this image. I want you to imagine a young tree. We have a, I'll just tell you, we have this little young, this little tree, this little sapling. I call it a treeling. I, I don't really know what they're called, but it's this, this little this little tree is growing out of the ground, and we're trying to take care of it. I, is that the one that was the pecan tree? Yeah. So it's a it was a pecan tree, and we want this thing to grow. We've got several in the yard, and so it just kind of planted itself, I imagine. And so this this little tree is growing up, uh, and we've 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 been kind of nurturing it, protecting it. There's nothing else around it, and it was about this tall, 
went outside one day, and the dog had eaten it. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Did anybody, anybody's dog eat live trees growing out of the ground? My dog did, and it, it's just totally destroyed. But you know what? This tree had everything else going for it. It was in a great part of the yard. Everything else was lively. It gets lots of rain. A, a tree should be growing there. But imagine a desert place, and there's a tree in the dry ground, and there's the roots reaching down, but as far as those root, roots want to reach, there's no water ever. There, this tree is never going to be watered. And so, in our minds, we're thinking that thing's not going to make it, right? Isn't that kind of how we conclude, what we conclude about this tree? This tree's not going to make it. I don't even know how it's here to begin with. So, in other words, we expect that this thing is not going to be lasting. It's going to produce no effect. It's certainly not going to produce any fruit. So, we might say that this tree appears worthless. This tree has no value. It's useless. It's worthless. It's not going to last. This is the image in our minds of what we need to be thinking about as this young root out of dry ground is growing. He says, who will believe what is being said of him? Who will be believe that there's a young tree growing out of dry ground and that it's going to be lasting? The imagery probably that you're thinking of is back in Isaiah 11.1, 1, right? Do you remember it? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So Isaiah's readers are already kind of uh, familiar with this terminology. We know, we expect that there's going to be a shoot, a branch that comes from the line of David, which brings us in our minds to this servant who clearly seems to be high and exalted. That sounds like royalty, right? Isn't David's line royal? And is it going to be a king that's coming? And so we put this imagery together and we say, God has already promised that there's going to be a root that springs up from David and it is going to last and it is going to bear fruit and it is going to be uh, something that is of value. In fact, he said back in verse 13 of chapter 52, which we looked at, uh, my servant will be high and lifted up and exalted. And all this tells us that he's going to last. Look at the second part of that verse. So that's the description of the servant, that he's this useless sapling growing out of dry ground. It sounds pretty kind of grim so far. There's not much hope for this situation. That's how we're supposed to look at the servant. But then it says, here's the people's uh, uh, reaction. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So do you see how the people are reacting to this tree that's growing out of the dry ground? There was nothing about him attractive to the people. He had no form, which means there was nothing in his appearance, no beauty. He wasn't handsome in that sense. He had no majesty. There was no splendor. There was no dignity. There was no glory about him, as you might expect in a king, right? As you might expect in a king to come and appear royal, dignified. There was nothing dignified about him. There was nothing royal about him. In fact, it was the opposite. He had no beauty, no brilliance. There was nothing to see. All these kind of mean the same thing, don't they? There was no desirability. They did not desire him. Now, if we saw one who was glorious and royal and dignified and beautiful, handsome, we're almost getting an image of kind of how David is described 
Isn't he described as someone who is, he's handsome, he's also uh, obviously athletically fit, and he's a musician, right? A really good musician. This guy's got everything going for him. Not so with the servant that is coming from his line. There is nothing about him that makes you think, oh, there's some potential in that guy, you know? Like, think of myself. You see me? He said, there's no potential there. There's nothing there about you that is anything, and that's what I see. Now, you see somebody else, and they have all this. You see, now there's something in potential. What we are supposed to have in our minds about this servant is that he is useless, growing from dry ground. He's not going to last. There is nothing beautiful in him. There is nothing royal in him. There is nothing dignified in him. There is nothing whatsoever that makes you desire him. You get that picture? Here's how we might summarize that. I, I, I have a uh, screen here for you, I, I believe. So the description of the servant is that he appears useless and worthless. The reaction of the people is that they don't desire him. Why? Because he's useless and worthless. So nothing about the, say, the, the servant's physical existence makes him appear valuable or desirable to the human eye and to the human mind. Now, of what consequence might that have for us? I think it does. And uh, I, I don't just want to draw your attention, though, to when Jesus came and you remember these phrases, uh, is this not the carpenter's son? You remember that? Uh, is, is his mother not called Mary? Are his brothers not James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? In other words, isn't he just a man? And isn't he just a carpenter's son? Right, that's, that's how he was supposed to be. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, that's how they're supposed to view him. He was supposed to be from Nazareth. He was supposed to be viewed this way. That's, that was the intention. Others said something like, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They were looking at the scriptures and they were trying to say, could he possibly fit what the scriptures are saying of him? And we might look at this and say, well, how could they not see what we see so plainly? Right? Isn't, isn't that the whole point of the question? How do you not see it? That he was supposed to be this kind of guy. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. Their eyes were blinded to it. Their ears were deaf to it. Why? Because the Lord had not revealed his arm to them. That's the whole point. Who's going to believe that your great, majestic, royal servant, God in the flesh, to save humanity, is going to be that kind of guy. Only those who have the arm of the Lord revealed to them, that's who's going to believe that the Savior looks like that, and they're going to believe it. What makes the Savior desirable? This is a question we need to consider because I think much of modern Christianity wants to make Jesus Christ desirable to the eyes. We want to make Jesus as attractive as we can make him. We want to make his church as attractive as we can make it, right? Which means that we need the best production possible. And if you're going to have a good production, it definitely means smoke on the stage. I just, that's just what it means. Why? Because appearances matter to much of the modern church. 
unfortunately. There is nothing you can do or should do to make the Savior desirable because he, by definition, is not desirable. There is nothing that you can do to make him attractive so that someone says, I want that kind of Jesus. But isn't that exactly what happens? We end up giving someone a Jesus who, in fact, is not the Jesus of the scriptures. We turn Jesus into something that is attractive, is desirable. That's the kind of Savior that I want. The kind of Savior that loves anybody and everybody and accepts everybody exactly as they are for who they are, and he's not judgy. I want a non-judgy Jesus. I want a Jesus who doesn't demand repentance. Get the idea? We need to be very careful that we do not take the Jesus of the scriptures, who is the servant that is to come, and transform him into something that he is not. We need to be careful to not take his church and make it about appearances. You need to be careful for yourself to not make yourself about appearances. What is the Christian life? Is it to appear a certain way? I certainly hope you don't think so because there was far more than meets the eye with the servant of God, wasn't there? And there is where we find the great value. So what we might say before we move on is that we shouldn't modify uncomfortable or unpopular beliefs to make the gospel more palatable. We know that to be true already, don't we? I just kind of want to fortify that in your minds this morning, that you might see that the text does necessarily lead us to those types of conclusions. That we should not be making these things. The common phrase for this is watering things down. I don't know that that actually does justice to what's actually being said, because we're doing far more than watering it down. We are watering it down. Excuse me are watering it down, but we're doing something in addition. We're not just taking away, we're adding stuff that's not actually present. We're, not, we're adding stuff that's not actually there. We're making it something else entirely. And we need to be careful that we're not doing that. How is our faith born? How is it that we go from not seeing to seeing? How is it that we go from seeing this servant who is undesirable And all of a sudden, now he is desirable to us. Do you remember that transformation in your own life? Where you once heard of this Jesus, you heard the scriptures, you heard the gospel maybe, and you wanted nothing to do with it. It was not desirable to you. What happened? That the thing that you didn't like, that you went from not believing to not only believing it, but it was so desirable that you wanted it and nothing else. How does such a change occur? It occurs when the Lord reveals himself to you. Just want to read quickly out of John chapter 6. This is verses 44 through 47. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why might that be? For the reasons that we just said. And I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now, in order to be taught by God, you need to see and hear. Now, you don't have to literally have physical vision to learn from God, do you? 
So it's talking about a different type of sight and hearing. You need to be enabled to see and hear God himself in order to be taught by God, don't you? And they will all be taught by God. All who? All who are drawn by the Father to the Son. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. True. And who are those who are going to believe? Those who can't see it? Those who can't hear it? Those who are not taught by God? What are they going to believe? They are the type that will believe a different gospel message. They are the type that don't want to believe what you have to say, but you want them so desperately to believe it that you change the message into something desirable. We need to be careful to not do that. We need to be careful to remain true to the scriptures because this servant, this Jesus, is someone other than we would expect. For the believer, there is something in our sin nature, by the way, that is going to, at times, want us to go back to this human way of seeing our Savior. That for whatever reason, in this moment, my Savior is not attractive to me. For whatever reason, in this moment, my Savior is not desirable to me. For whatever reason, in this moment, what my Savior has to say to me and all of who he is in the gospel message is for whatever reason not attractive to me. And at times, we can lean into that because it's our sin tendency to see through human eyes. And if we only see the Savior through human eyes, we're going to see something that is undesirable. So I want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, we need to see him for the truth of what God's word has said and see him with spiritual sight and to hear him. And to hear him with that kind of hearing that only God gives by his spirit. I'll reference here 1 Corinthians 2. This is verses 12 through 14. Just listen to what it says. It's so applicable to this situation. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So you see that there are spiritual truths that we still need to have given to us and interpreted for us that we might better understand them and cling to them, which tells us what? That we're not quite there, that we're not quite all the way believing, that we're not quite all the way seeing, we're not quite all the way hearing. And we sometimes don't see the Savior as we should if we're not all the way seeing, right? If we're not all the way hearing, we're hearing something other than we should. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they, those truths, are spiritually discerned. You ever had someone approach you in the middle of your sin and speak truth to you? It could be as simple as them texting you a passage of Scripture. And, oh, man, that just rubs you the wrong way. I don't want to hear that right now. I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about this matter. Let me wallow in my guilt and misery and sorrow and anger. I know that it's true because I have interaction with you. 
It's a common human experience that even when the words of the Savior come to your ears, at times, at times, they are not desirable to us. So then what enables us to have the words of God be desirable to us? Are there times even when you, you so desperately want to read your Bible, right? There are times all you want is the word of God. Give me the word. I want the word. And there are times when you say, I don't want the word. No, I have things I have to do. I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. I have no desire in me to read my Bible. The common thing I hear from the masses is, yeah, I need to be better about reading my Bible. Yeah, probably need to be better about that. Yeah. Where's the desire? How do you create that desire? Answer? It's a trick question. You can't. Did you see that you cannot create desires of godliness within yourself? You don't create godliness. God creates godliness. And so there is something about the preaching of the word that God has said is important for the church to gather and to hear the word and for us corporately to be held accountable to it. And God has said he's going to act in that. You ever been hearing the word preached and all of a sudden I feel something and it's making me feel uncomfortable and I see that there's truth value to it, but I know that there's something I need to do about it. And all of a sudden I have something happening inside of me. What is this? Could be uh, just guilt that you feel guilty. Uh, it actually could have no spiritual value. It's possible. Or it could be spiritual conviction. It could be, this, this is why I pray before the sermons that the Lord in all of us, all of us, that the Lord would enable us to see and to hear. We constantly need to be enabled by the Spirit to see, and I want to hear this text. I want to see it plainly. I have read it many times now. I've studied it for quite some time now. I have seen it and I have heard it and I have read it, but have I really? I want to know it more. I want to see it more. I want, to, I want it to impact my heart and my life. That's what I want, and that's what I want for you. But as much as I explain it, and as much as I talk about what, what this might mean for us, I cannot change you. I depend on the Lord to take the word that is being given and to take your heart and your mind and to have you see it. That is my heart. I understand that there's nothing good I have to say for you. I, there's nothing good I have to say. I don't have anything good to say. But God has everything to say. And I want you to hear what he has said. I want you to hear what he has said about this servant. And I want you to hear that it is true that there is not an ounce of desirability in him to the human eye and mind. And we feel the lingering effects in that. And we should be cautioned against it. Just quickly before we go to the, to the next verse, it says in Ephesians 4, 19 through 24, they have become callous. They've given themselves to sensuality, to every kind of practice and impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him 
as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it is corrupt. Listen to how it's corrupted. Through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now you might say, it sounds like an imperative in the text for us to do something. Put off my old self. That sounds like something I do. Right? Did you hear that? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Do it already. I can, is that something I can do? Be renewed. These, these types of things are, yes, a conviction to our hearts that God uses, that he uses his spirit in us to convict us that these things are true, and he is the one that actually brings about the change in our lives. So when you do it, it is actually not you doing it. It is the Spirit of God doing it in you. How? Because you were found in Christ and you have been given the Spirit because you have faith in the Savior's person and work. It all works together. Any righteousness that you produce, any spiritual seeing, any spiritual hearing, any spiritual change, any desire you have for God, for godliness, is righteousness. And there is no righteousness that you produce of your own doing because then we would have reason for boasting and bragging about the great righteousness that I have and that I don't know why you don't just get with it already. Be more like me. Be more good like me. It also leads to us just saying, stop doing bad things and God will like you better. That's just boiling it down. Do you know that if you just stop doing good things, you're still not acceptable to God unless you have faith in Christ? Do you know that even if you were convinced that you have stopped doing all those bad things that you haven't really, but you're just fooling yourself? Because you don't even know what good is. Why? Because you're deaf and you're blind. You don't even know what goodness is. So that should put a stop to all of that. We need to see the Savior for who he truly is and what kind of man was he? He was nothing desirable. What else? Here's the other reason that we're going to ask this question. Now, the, fir the, first question, the first explanation for why the question is asked, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, we need to ask this question because clearly he's not desirable. So who is it that's going to believe in him if he's not desirable? Next, he was, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So again, we have a description of the servant and then we have the reaction of the people. What's the description of the servant in this scenario? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What, what kind of person is that? Is that the kind of person that you say, yes, I want to be on his team. This guy that everyone hates and is rejected and is sorrowful and has nothing but grief in his life. Sign me up. I want to follow him. A few words that we know from the New Testament description of Jesus. John 1, beginning in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Why? We know that especially for the Jews and the, the religious leaders, they were expecting a completely type of Savior. He did not meet their expectations. Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on th after three days rise again. Jesus was telling his disciples that he, the Son of Man, must suffer, he must suffer, and he must be rejected. By who? By the elders and chief priests and the scribes. All the religious guys who are telling you who God is and what God has said and how you can please God with your life. All those people, they are the ones, the very ones who are going to say, this guy is so unlike the Messiah, he's blaspheming, let's kill him. But Jesus said, this must take place. I must be rejected. I must be despised. I must be. Mark 9, 12. He says, it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. This is, this is witnessed over and over again. But we have to ask, why should God's chosen servant be despised and rejected and experience sorrow and grief? Is this the one who God has given abundant favor? Right? Isn't he the one who is God's chosen servant, who is high and lifted up and exalted? Isn't that the chosen servant of God? Is it true that this chosen servant of God would be one who was full of grief and sorrow and was rejected and was despised? All these things are true. Let me maybe create this parallel a little better for you, is that if, if this is God's chosen servant, you say, God, God chose you. He chose you for this. The, the biggest task that there ever will be, God chose this one for that task. That's a great blessing. You have the blessing of God on your life. He, that God has chosen you. He has anointed you. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. And he is exalting you. What, what better could there be for God Almighty to say, you are the one who's going to be exalted over all things? you are going to be high and lifted up above all. Is that not the blessing of God? So the blessing of God for the servant meant what? Sorrow, grief, and suffering, being despised and rejected. That's what the blessing of God looked like. That kind of makes our expectations of God's blessings crumble before our eyes, I think. Doesn't it? If there was ever one blessed by God, was it not Jesus Christ himself? In fact, the scriptures tell us that. And yet he was the one who more than any was acquainted with sorrow and suffering and grief. So what's the reaction of the people? He was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, we counted him as absolutely nothing. He's meaningless. It is equivalent to passing, uh, listen, should this be the way that it is? No, but often we pass people, if you're in a, in a city and, and you're in a circumstance where maybe you don't feel safe and there are people who you simply pass by and you discredit immediately just because of their situation and how they look. Is that not true? 
Is that not seeing with human eyes and thinking with human brains? And according to that, you're counted as nothing and you pass by, you esteem them not, right? You credit them with nothing. This is how the people reacted to the servant. They counted him as nothing. They reckoned him not, right? No esteem. So this kind of thought makes us think, I don't want to be associated with this guy because I, thinking about my life, I'm sorry. I don't want to be rejected and despised, hated, esteemed not, sorrow and suffer, with grief and despair. I don't know that I want to, I don't, I don't know what, that I want all that. So it's interesting because listen to what, listen to what Peter says. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 73. After a little while, bystanders came up and, and they said to Peter, so this is in the middle of the passion scenario and Jesus is being led away, he's being flogged at this point. And uh, well, th- he's, he's being led on that journey. And it says, certainly you too were one of them. Your accent betrays you. I, you're from the same place that this guy's from. I know you are. You're not from around here. I know that you're a follower of Jesus. And he began to invoke a curse on himself. This is Peter. He invoked a curse on himself, and he said, I swear, I don't know that man. And immediately the rooster crowed. We know that story. Why? Because the man who is being despised and rejected among men, I don't want to be associated with because I don't want that on myself. All right, so how might we summarize this point? So we have the description of the servant. He appears rejected and and cursed. Then we have the reaction of the people. They discredit him. They dissociate with him, right? Nothing to do with this guy. So what we can conclude is that nothing about the servant's physical existence made him appear blessed or exalted in the eye or in of the mind. So let's put those two uh, summaries up there for us, Rob. These are the two concepts that we're walking away with. That nothing about the servant's physical existence made him appear valuable or desirable or blessed and exalted. Right? This is what we are intended to walk away with with Isaiah's description and the reaction of the people. And so the question is, who's going to believe in this kind of Savior? The answer is in the question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because you will not believe in this kind of Savior unless the Lord reveals himself to you and says, yes, this is in fact my servant. And then all of a sudden you see for the first time that there is value and this is what you desire above all things. So quickly here, a few, uh, a few thoughts and, and some ap- applications here from this text. I hope you are enjoying... Uh, this section of scripture as much as I am. Uh, I have really enjoyed our our time in here, and uh, I just think there is so much for us to walk away with. And and we were talking as we were meeting this morning, the elders, and it's it's actually the providence of God that we're kind of digging into these things right before Easter, right? Uh, Because our minds should be on these types of things, and so this is good. 
uh, and, and I hope you're enjoying our time here, but I, I want you to walk away with uh, some additional things this morning while, while we're wrapping up our time. Um, the first thing that I, I want to do is read for you out of Matthew 16, verse 21. And it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day uh, rise. I already said that. But Peter looked at him, or Peter took him aside, excuse me, and he, and he began to rebuke him. That is, Peter began to rebuke Jesus. He probably shouldn't have done that, but that's what he did. And he said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Did Peter get it quite at this point? But he turned to Peter, and what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So do you see how it's a mindset about expectations of who the Savior is and what he has done? It is a mindset of who the Savior truly is and what he truly came to accomplish. The gospel is not about so much, so much of talk about the gospel, and I, I just have to think about this in terms of just the way Christianity is being discussed, especially recently, and this whole idea of deconstructing our faith, right? Uh, which we are not doing, by the way, but many are deconstructing their faith because a lot of these things seem outrageous, that we can never believe these things. And, and certainly the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross to bear the penalty of the sins of the people, that we might be reconciled to God by his sacrifice and we might be justified according to his resurrection that we might be glorified. Um, all these things are being rejected because it seems like God would never do that. God would never send his son to be tortured and to suffer. You say something like, can you imagine sending your own child on a mission to suffer and be tortured and die? I don't want to serve that kind of God who can think such thoughts and do such things. They don't see it. They don't see the love of God, do they? They don't see the mercy of God, do they? They don't see the justice of God, do they? Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So the gospel message is not so much about how we can appear better or how we can be better exalted or how we can be better people but the gospel is more about man being humbled down to his proper place not about lifting man up and making him feel better about himself the gospel message is about pushing you as low as you can get humbling yourself before him and so Peter just outright says humble yourself before God and then at the proper time, he will exalt you, not based on anything you have done, not based on anything you are, but based on everything his servant has done. We need to have a humble recognition of what we actually deserve, and then we come to see 
what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I'll just, I'll end here. There are a couple of things I want us to see. First of all, that the blessing of God is not what human eyes and minds expect. Did you already see that in, in what we were reading here and explaining this morning? That the blessing of God is not what human eyes and minds expect. This is exactly what leads into modern-day belief of if God is blessing you, that means you're going to have money. If God is blessing you, you're going to be healthy. If God is blessing you, then all your troubles are going to fade away. If God is truly in this, then a door will be wide open for you. That's easy. You're just so wrong about that. None of that is true. The blessing of God sometimes may look like that. Sometimes it may look like the exact opposite of that. It's the hardest road you have ever walked. Every door was closed. I had grief and suffering along that journey. And that was the Lord's intention because you are found to be blessed because you are in him, the blessed one. Additionally, the blessing of God is not acquired by human works or merit. The blessing of God is not acquired by you by changing your behaviors. It doesn't work like that. The blessing of God is given to you when you humble yourself before him and you see that there is only one place to find blessing. There is only one place to have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, actually, as scripture says. That's Ephesians 1. Let me just read it for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know that for those who are in Christ, you receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is already yours? And so you have to ask, you have to ask, if we're just being honest, then why doesn't my life look blessed? Right? If you're telling me the Savior is so great and that he loves me so much and that he has so much compassion on me and that he loves me and he has a great plan for my life, then why does my life look like this? It's because your expectations are wrong. Just like many had false expectations about who this, the servant of God was to be. And we need to adjust our expectations of our lives based on what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve a lot less than what we're actually receiving. You might say, but you don't know what I've been going through. It doesn't matter. I promise you it doesn't matter. We deserve far less. But let me offer you this hope that when you are taken into the pits, I promise you this is true. When you, when life takes you down that road of suffering and sorrow and grief and heartache, and you are so low, there is no lower place for you to get, then this is the grace of God that you might, in your sorrow, look up and see that there is only one hope of joy that you might in your sorrow and in your grief recognize that this world has nothing for me and I deserve nothing from it. But actually what happens is that the lower you go, the higher you see that God is. God is ever exalted and lifted up 
far higher than we could ever even imagine him to be. He is so much greater than us, so much more perfect than us, so much more holy than us. We can't push ourselves low enough, so by his grace, God offers this, that we might experience sorrow and grief, but yet not eternally if we are in Christ. That we might allow this suffering that we didn't expect by being blessed by God to come on our lives and say, even this is ordained by God. Even this, though I'm having a hard time seeing it, I trust that even this is the blessing of God. That I see that I am already blessed because I am in Christ. He is the blessed one. He was the great servant of God who suffered for my sake. And it is actually when I suffer that I identify with him and I actually understand the sufferings and the sorrow and the grief that my Savior experienced and I come to love him even more, that I come to understand his value even more. And so what I'm saying is these times that you go through in your life, and maybe you're not in one right now, but I know that there are some who are, these times in your life do not indicate that God has left you or rejected you or has found his displeasure in you, that he has cursed you, if you are truly in Christ by faith, you are eternally blessed. Eternally blessed. Don't forget that in the midst of your situation. If you want an example of that, just look at how much the blessed one, the servant of God, suffered in his life. And why did he suffer these things? For our sake. He suffered on our behalf the things that we should have suffered. So, here we have this picture. Now, I have to tell you that as we go through this text, it doesn't get better for the servant. It only gets worse. What are your expectations of who your Savior is? What are your expectations of what it looks like to be blessed by God? What has the Savior, the servant of God, truly accomplished? All these are questions that we need to ask. And it ends up being this primary question that we've been looking at. Who is going to believe these things? This This sounds miserable. Sign me up for a life of suffering. I think Jesus said that. I think he said it to everyone who would follow in his steps. As they treated me, so they are going to treat you. As they hated me, they're going to hate you. As they rejected me, they're going to reject you. Why? Because now your identity is found in Christ. And the world hates him. So guess who they hate? You. Guess who they're going to reject? You. This is the life of a Christian. Now, are there other aspects? Yes. But focusing in on the reality of all that God has done for us and what it means is important. Let's adjust our expectations. Let us give God glory for all that he has done for us in this servant. And uh, as we approach Easter, I think it's important for us to do this. Maybe, maybe it'll lift up the work on the cross and we can see it maybe more clearly for what it is and the prize and the treasure that it is. All right, we're going we're gonna to pray together. We're going to sing one more song before we go today, okay? Let's pray.